RPG Ramblings with Jeff Jones. This is a weekly show exploring the various details of the tabletop RPG hobby through discussions with interesting people. This week, Trevor Stamper joins me. You may know him as one of the masterminds behind the zine series, Tales of the Smoking Worm. I'm not sure how to title this episode, so I'm just sticking with Shop Talk. After I ended the podcast, we kept talking. There was some good stuff in that section, so I'm tacking that on to the end of this episode. Sisters and brothers, we have a lot of ground to cover. It's time to leave the warm hearth, put on our cloaks, and get ready. Hello, Trevor. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing? For, oh, I'm doing quite well. Thanks for joining me this fine morning. Absolutely. I'm happy to do it. So it seems like we've we've met twice. So once virtually, but then the second time, uh, it was at, at Gamehole Con. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so no, uh, it was the strangest, strangest thing. So... I drive, it's, I'm three hours away. Uh, I drove, got up at, you know, and left at six in the morning, got there, got to my first game. I sit down at 10 o'clock. Um, we're all kind of around the table. This guy next to me says, I think it said, but Hey, are you Jeff Jones? <laughs> I listened to your podcast. <laughs> like It was the most surreal crazy thing and it was you you were uh you were at the first game that i played at a game hall con uh this year yes I, I believe i was yeah with jim wampler yes with jim wampler and uh you recognize my voice which i i guess is distinct we always i think think that we're just average and it won't uh show up but uh anyway that was uh it was quite interesting then when you said trevor it's like oh yeah but then i realized the icon on Facebook that you've got doesn't show a, a portrait of you. It does not. No, it doesn't. And so I was just like, it was just kind of, it was just the, it's kind of funny. Then all of a sudden, you know, putting that, you know, together. So you, um, yeah, a number of people there that we met, but anyway, it's kind of fun putting a, a name to a face. It absolutely is. Yeah, no, I agree. And actually, as a matter of fact, at that game, uh, Julian Bernicke was there as well. He was sitting on the other side of you. Yes, and uh, and he's on the uh, the Spellburn podcast, which I listen to um, every time it comes out, just like yours. And so um, I was too shy to actually approach Julian Bernicke. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but but I have had the, I've had that uh, recent that that same experience you just had at GameholeCon meeting me um, at GenCon uh, the the just this fall. Uh, the first two games I sat down with, uh, sat down at Gen Con, uh, a Dawn Patrol game, and then um, a Don't Give Up the Ship, we played on, on the Thursday morning. And in both of those games, I sat down next to people who, uh, who subscribe and have, uh, have purchased copies of my Smoking Worm. And it was the weirdest thing to be sitting there and have a guy turn to me and say, look at my, he actually saw my badge, I have a Goodman Games name badge from years ago when I judged for them for a couple of sessions at an old Gen Con. And he was like, Oh, he's like, are you Trevor? Do you, are, are you the guy behind the smoking worm? And that was just, it was the, it was the <laughs> most, I'd never thought I'd be recognized for that. Right. I, you know, we don't certainly put pictures of ourselves in the, in the zine. And so, uh, but there was, it was great. I had great conversations uh, with those people. So that was a lot of fun. But you think about it. And that's, I was telling somebody, it's like, like, I produce like you, you produce a product, and then that product is only measured in hundreds, and it's distributed yes. across the U.S. and sometimes the world. And then, 
you, you can't think like, what are the odds? You know, it's like absolutely. So, as a matter of fact, we were we were playtesting some new upcoming products that I'm going to be putting out next year at Gen Con, uh, and I ha- I roped two buddies, actually my two founding cohorts, our co-hosts uh, Brian Gilkison and John Olszewski. They ran um, the same thing, and then we all compared notes. And at every table we ran, we ran into people who had purchased the smoking room. And so, you know, I mean, obviously we're narrowing down because we're running Dungeon Crawl Classics modules and stuff. But, um, you know, it, it was uh, it was definitely a, a seren, you know, like not a, not serendipitous, but it was a very strange thing to then meet people who have experienced our product as a consumer, which is absolutely not the experience that I have with my product, right? Uh, it's a it's a birthing process. Uh, which I think you're you're intimately familiar with because you've talked about it previously on RPG Ramblings. Yeah. All the trials and tribulations that you go into to produce, you know, um, you know, a, a, a copy of of whatever product you're putting out. Um, I see it very differently than anybody else does because I've been through 27 drafts of that and 30 drafts of this. And I, yeah. I, admi- I admire you for that. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that right now, Trevor. <laughs> Oh, thank you. <laughs> and we can talk about that later, but uh, you, it seems like you and your group have a good process for for quality control and the quality assurance in the product. Well, you know, one of the people, John Olszewski, is a quality assurance, quality control expert. That's what he does for li- did for a living for over a decade. Um, yeah, for, it for you know, yeah, for for his work um, and. Um, and uh, three of or two of the three of us have published in, in uh, professional journals um, for decades. I have, gosh, fifteen to twenty publications in my professional life. Um, and and what we discovered was attention to detail is absolutely paramount to getting the product you want at the end. And and for me, that's the enjoyable thing about writing and editing is finding the little hook that you're like. Oh my God, that's awesome, right? Yeah. <laughs> that that special ability you give the lich, that that you know, cool twist of a game mechanic that you throw in there, and you're like, ah, oh, yeah, that's gonna be so cool at the gaming table. And and those are the things that we we work on. And I and I found that that only comes through time and iteration. So Yeah, and I think I appreciate that because I'm more impetuous. I mean, I have just like I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to do this. Let's get it out. Not necessarily pushing things out without without any sort of quality controls because I do put some controls in as far as copy editor and such. But I think with you putting out the gaming, you, you're play testing. I have multiple people reading through it, uh, which is definitely a, a great. I don't want to say luxury, but that's a great opportunity to to make sure you you develop things properly and things are the best that they can be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and there those are two schools of thought, right? Uh, one school of thought is is just get it on paper, get it published, and get it out there with as minimal not effort, but with as minimal pass through filters as you've got to to where you're happy with it. And the other one is is we're going to take a lot of time, and it's going to go through a lot of eyes. But there's a compromise there because every person who looks at it adds their opinions to it. If it's a copy editor, if it's a content editor, which I now have for Smoking Worm. If it is um, my developmental editors, you know, Brian and John, um, even if it's, uh, I sometimes send send briefs to artists, right? And so the artists, now we send layout briefs and uh, they'll catch something 
as they read through the brief and they read through the article that they're trying to pull a piece of art out of. And, uh, and they'll come back and ask me a question and stuff. And so, so viewpoints um, are really important. And so you have to realize that that is a, a, a team effort. And, you know, we have a, at the Smoking Worm, we have a secret Facebook group that has about 20 people on it. Um, as a matter of fact, one of the things that we offer on our Kickstarters is a tier where you can get on to the, that you can get gain access to the secret group for one issue's worth of time. Now that may take six months. It may take, you know, two months, depending on how fast we're working at the time. But um, you pay a little more, you get in there and, and then you get, I mean, we post drafts of things. We post pieces of things. If I hit a conundrum, like a rules thing that I'm stuck on, I'll hit this or an idea I have. Uh, the artists post their um, their sketches and we talk about the art um, and everything. So, um, you know, that's so we even elicit outside support uh, and thoughts, uh, which can be as in-depth as the people want to contribute. Most of them just lurk. Um, I think they're happy just to kind of see the process. Right. But, uh, but a lot of the, you know, I mean, some of them do... That contribute. As a matter of fact, one of our people who is an artist uh, in issue two and three, and has a couple of pieces of art, one one piece of art in four and five as well. Uh, five hasn't been published, and four just kickstarted. Um, he started out as somebody who was just uh, just a lurker, and he posted a piece of art one day. And was like, "Oh, this is what I do," you know, and from there that generated conversation. So, yeah, I think that's you know even talking about that, it's like. You know, it's there are services that people have or abilities people have, and I know, like myself, I'm learning to reach out to people. But it is a hard thing to do to initially when you start this kind of thing is like reaching out and understanding, if, you know, working with people and trying to understand, you know, if people want your services or likewise if you want to pay for services. Uh, yeah, and that does provide a good opportunity because you have a community. And apparently, he felt comfortable enough at a certain point to be able to do that. Right. And, and, you know, uh, the truth is, is if something were to go poorly, we would be aware of who the individual was that that's, you know, it's a small enough community that that's not a problem uh, with, with the people I contribute to. But, um, but I, I like different varying viewpoints. And so, um, you know, right. Like in our first issue, we had a Cthulhu patron for, for dungeon crawl classics. It's something that, Nobody had ever done. Goodman Games has Cthulhu clearly identified as a, as a deity, but also as a patron. And uh, we were like, we need a patron right up. Actually, that was the impetus for the first issue. And, um, and so, you know, Brian and I wrote that, and he was lead author, and I was secondary author. But the number of times we trashed what we'd written and completely rewrote it from scratch was just, I mean, it took two years. Um, it was a level of writing that I think Brian wasn't used to. And, and if you write journal articles professionally, um, articles can take years, but sometimes it can be very frustrating. So, and you got to get past that and you want to maintain those friendships, right? I mean, you don't want to lose a friend because you were like, no, no, this really is not a good way to describe this aspect of Cthulhu. Um, we just have to, so sometimes you butt heads and you'd have to walk away for a couple months and then come back to it. And um, back before we published issue one, we had the luxury to do that. It's kind of like, I think, uh, Nick Baron, who is part of Breaker, runs Breaker Press Games, he was into the punk scene for a long time. And, and um, you know, 
one of the things that I hear often in the music scene is you have like 10 years to make your first album. You only have six months to make the second one. Right. Right. And so, you know, that first one is a true labor of love. The second one is not going to look like that. It's going to be Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. Like Pirates of the Caribbean. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, Yeah, that is true. Cause all of a sudden it's like, one successful after all this time then it's like i need to i need three of them out in the next uh, couple years you know like get to it yeah and and i was i recently read an article was it the washington post or maybe it was the wall street journal that was talking about how capitalism destroys creativity um and um, i'm not sure i completely agreed with it but it is definitely uh something to think about you know how do you maintain uh, a creative ethos while trying to be a capitalist, right? I, th- I think we're closer to that now than we ever have been. I think it's bo- there's both less big money in the industry, probably the music industry, but there's more avenues of getting revenue streams than ever before. Yeah, and I, and I believe the same thing is true with role-playing games. I think Kickstarter is the big, uh, and crowdfunding so I, I want to thank the FCC for allowing us to have those things. Um, uh, you know, I think I think crowdfunding is the huge equalizer, right? Uh, I mean, I mean, Mothership right yeah. now is on Kickstarter and it's nearing a million dollars if it hasn't gone past it. And um, and as a Tuesday Night Games, the guys that produce that, you know, that's a, that's a it's like what a forty-eight or sixty-four page zine, and um, and they're riding the wave of success that they couldn't easily do if they were having to be constrained by standard role-playing game supply chains, right? Moving through a distributor directly and, and, and getting to a retailer because the, their ability to penetrate that market would be very hard. Um, but on Kickstarter, it's a different story. Yeah, I so. agree. It, it is it, there. It takes, I mean, it takes a lot of money to, to do traditional printing and also, you know, anybody's going to, if you're trying to sell your product to a person for them to resell, you know, they're going to see what's, what are they going to get out of that investment? And if it's not Absolutely. a very good investment, it's very risky. It's like, they're not going to do it. But, you know, for you and I, Kickstarter takes the risk out of it. Well, I shouldn't say it takes the risk out. Uh, yeah, it, it, I mean, it, it practically does. I mean, there's still risks involved, but I mean, but in general you know exactly what you're funding at. You know what you need to print. Yes. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> and I don't know about you, but, but I have a very specific kind of formula of where I print at, depending on how my Kickstarter goes. That's a, that's a subject that uh, we had a group of people talking about Kickstarters, and that's a subject that I want to talk about is you know inventory because what i've tried to do up till now is avoid inventory um but i think if you're doing a continuous series of kickstarters then inventory is what you can use because once you once you you know basically with printing once you get it's like your initial few books are your most expensive Mm -hmm. and then everything after that's pretty cheap and you can make a pretty good amount of money if you can buy a lot of inventory cheap and sell it at a, a higher price but you know, there's, there's that that balance, and if you're not going to keep doing Kickstarters, I, I think your product is really good for because um, yours can be sold in stores and not be a problem. But you know, some of the ones I've done so far, I don't 
it may be future ones will, but I mean, it's, it's kind of like, I don't know how easy this is going to be. So I don't want to be stuck with 50 copies or hundred copies. So, so what do you do as far as, cause you have a, you have a continuing product, um, the, uh, tales from the smoking worm. Right. And you're going to continue to do Kickstarters. You've got a team going. So how do you, how do you handle that? I mean, what's, what goes through your mind when you say, you know what, I've, I funded for this. Um, now it's time to order copies. What do you order beyond what the the order or what the pledging is? Sure. So let's let's um, split things into categories so we can think about them. Um, the first thing is to me the purpose of the Kickstarter is twofold. The primary purpose of the Kickstarter is exactly what the mission statement of Kickstarter is. It is to fund artistic endeavors. What does that mean for me? That means it means to fund the writing, especially now that Smoking Worm is, you know, we're, we're, we're past, we're, we're working on and finishing up the fourth issue, but I actually am right now writing on issue five, six, seven, eight, and nine. Um, I, I, we're at a point where we're beginning to attract individuals who contact us and say, hey, I'd really like to, ha- I have this idea. And so um, that's a wonderful thing to suddenly have potentially people who right. can write for you. Um, and so uh, I need to be able to pay the writers as artists. I need to be able to pay artists as artists. I need to be able to pay a design team. Um, and that design team, it consists of, I, I mean, I understand and have worked with uh, Adobe InDesign since it was all this PageMaker 1.3, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, and Adobe Illustrator since it first came out. Um, but I, but only in a peripheral sense. It, my, 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 my main career track was not as a graphic designer, but I've had these programs forever. I've played with them um, since I began writing rules in the eighties and stuff and, you know, built character sheets in them and stuff like this. So I know how they work, but you still need a designer because what I find is, is I only have so much time in my life in, in terms of working on um, uh, an issue of the smoking worm and so then I have to ask myself, where is my time best set spent? Right. Is it best spent orchestrating everything and not having any 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 fingers on stuff directly? Like I'm not writing, um, probably, but that's artistically unhappy. Uh, uh, it's an unhappy space for me, um, and uh, and I so I want to be able to write what I want to be able to write and and put it in my own product. So I make sure that I carve out time for me artistically, but also then to manage and handing over the design duties is one way to do that. I still have heavy fingers on it, but, um, but it's, it, yeah. So I need to pay all those people. And, um, and I, if you looked at issue one through three, which are out um, and in people's hands, you would see that the number of people increases every issue. Um, uh, issue three was a huge issue for us. It had, I believe, nine different artists. Let me look. Actually, six. Issue two had nine artists. I had a huge number of artists for issue two. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Right? Nine artists in issue two. Oh, that was issue three. Um, and so organizing all that and everything is important. I need to pay for all that. So that's the primary point of the Kickstarter, to pay for that. Uh, the secondary thing is I want to give value back to the people who have crowdfunded us. And right. so we produce two versions of the zine. Um, one of them is a limited edition, risographic printed 
hand assembled, you know, I mean, not by machine assembled um, product. And so it's on high quality archival paper. It's got a high cotton rag content to it. Um, the first three issues actually were on, had a cover stock called Cordwain. Um, here's a total piece of trivia for you. TSR in its early days, the OD&D days, printed on Cordwain almost exclusively as cover stock. Um, Cordwain was on the cover of all of their uh, small digest sized, um, you know, miniatures games like uh, Don't Give Up the Ship was printed on Cordwain. The original OD&D box set booklets were printed on Cordwain. And, uh, and I ran across this, I, I own copies of them and stuff. And I realized that I've always loved the feel of that product. Um, and so we used Cordwain as a cover stock because I discovered one day it still existed. And I'm like, ah, oh, this is what a cool thing. And, um, and, and everything. So, uh, you know, so we're, we're working with premium materials to give a premium product. And the cool thing about those ones, because they're assembled by hand, because the risographic team is just a little mom and pop shop in Pennsylvania, I can have them do things in the risographic copy that I can't do for instance, in this standard Mixam copy I've got here for the standard edition. Um, we have fold-out pages, so we right. will have we have gate folds and stuff like this. Neat. And, um, and you know, in the back of, uh, we now have a sister zine called Smoking Room Monograph, which I, which I funded an issue f with the fourth Kickstarter. It will actually have a pocket, uh, like an envelope in the back cover that allows you to hold cards, uh, tarot-sized art cards, um, which are the monster's for a module or for an adventure that's in there. So there's a whole bunch of cool things I can do with the risographic limited editions and stuff that I that you can't do with a standard Mixam edition, right? Or or any, you know, any small any large, large small press company, uh, whether it's Print Ninja or Lulu or Drive Through or um, you know, Mixam or anything, they just don't have the hands-on time and everything. So so that that's the two things that I think of that a Kickstarter funds. Anything beyond that <clears throat> almost immediately gets folded back into the Kickstarter, uh, the products. Um, so for instance, with issue, the Kickstarter for issue four, um, we paid for everything, uh, which was great. I paid, I'm, I'm going to be able to pay ahead on issue five and issue six for art and artists or writers and who are helping me. And then I also paid for a, a small RAID drive so that I could begin to make sure that all my digital files were completely redundantly backed up and secure, um, which it turns out, since we live in a digital age, is super important, right? I mean, I, right now I've got three hard drives attached to my computer, and, uh, and they all have various portions of things. And with a RAID drive, I'll be able to organize it, and codify it, and keep it in a way that is, um, you know, accessible for the future. So does that make sense? So that's what I think of as what a Kickstarter does. And for that, I price the, I, I, I print to a volume that is just beyond what um, I kickstarted. So for instance, for issue four, uh, for Tales of the Smoking Worm, I looked at the numbers. I think we, I think we actually had 224 issue, uh, physical backers, which is the highest I've ever had. And, uh, and then I will, I will, put in a margin of 10% immediately because that covers damage and postal. And I don't yeah. think about that. So that's 250 copies I'm going to print. And then um, one of the great things about being a licensed product from Goodman games 
is um, Goodman Games will buy your products uh, on at least on the first first time, and they'll they'll contact you and you, you'll you'll say, okay, hey, I've got this issue done, and they'll buy say forty or fifty copies, and so so I'll I'll work that in, and then I usually work with about a fifty issue slush fund, so. I'll probably print 300 to 350 copies of issue four. And then that's that. The standard edition is a totally different math. Um, the standard editions, once I've sold out of a limited edition, I'll print a standard edition. They're different. Uh, they don't have the fold out pages. They're not on the high quality. They're on high quality paper, but they're not on archival quality paper. Um, we use, one of the things that we offer in the Kickstarter, if you, here, let me, that way for the camera, you can see this cover. You can see that cover. You can see they're nice and in color. Yeah. Um, and what it, what it is, is during the Kickstarter, my artists who were originally trained as comic book artists at the Kirby School for Comic Book Art, um, they will do um, original, what, what, they, what you call is a, in the comic book industry, it's kind of called a, a, it's not a color sketch, but it, it's called a color blank or a color proof. And so you would, you would, the artist would do the coloring. This is the colors that I want on my piece. That would then go to the colorist, right? Who would do a final illustration of that on the, on a copy of the thing. And then uh, from there, that would actually go to the color producer, the guy who actually cuts the plates and everything. And that's a, that's, that's a whole process in the industry. So these guys, what they would do is they would do um, custom color washes. They do four or five of them. And we sell those at a premium on the Kickstarter usually about a hundred bucks. And, um, and then the artist gets the lion's share of that. And then the Kickstarter gets a little bit of it too. And so, um, but we use those, we scan those color copies and the ones that I'm happiest with, um, we then turn into the cover of the standard edition and, um, and it's worked out great. They have beautiful, you know, cause they're hand applied washes. They have these beautiful gradients and, and they're just great. Oh, so, um, so yeah, so, so I use the Kickstarter, to pay for everybody to fund a premium product that will, that's a limited edition product. It'll, it'll be signed um, or numbered. <clears throat> so you know exactly how many of that was produced. And then, um, and then once that's sold out, then I turn around and I look at the math for an unlimited standard edition. And what I'm going to do with that is um, I'll put printing notes in it, first printing, second printing, so on and so forth. How many copies were printed uh, a thousand or 200 or whatever I'm printing. And I look at Kickstarter sales for the last issue. For instance, for the last issue on the standard editions, we sold about 50 copies of each. Now, these are back issue sales, essentially. Right. And I'll look at it and I'll say, I'm, I'm going to do four or six Kickstarters or whatever next year. So I'm going to need at least 300 of that to cover those Kickstarters. And then I also know that Goodman Games is going to pick those up. And so I'll print a run that lasts me a year projected. And we'll see how that works. <clears throat> so far, it's worked pretty good. Well, I think with what you're doing is like, you know, the, if if you have a series of things, somebody you know buys, you know, smells, uh, smells, <laughs> tales of the smoking worm, you know, like number eight in the future. It's like somebody say, "Hey, but I want all of the other ones," and you know, that's where I'm sure people say, you know, the various deep levels of saying picking up back copies. So. I think yeah. people do want physical copies. I mean, that just seems think, to be the, the thing. I think they do too. I mean, you got to remember that, that role-playing, I mean, we've all been kicked on the Zoom and, uh, and the various variants of that for the last two years because of the pandemic. 
But for me, um, role-playing is about companionship and friendship and hanging out at a table. And um, it's almost like a Thanksgiving feast is how I think of it, right? You know, weekly or biweekly or once a month, you and your friends get together and you tell a great story and you laugh and you have a good time and sometimes you cry. And, uh, and you usually have snacks and it's a physical tactile thing. And because it's a physical tactile thing, um, I believe that the physical tactile products are important. Um, and so, so I usually, we just have kind of a standing agreement with my group that when we're meeting in person, we don't have digital products out. We have hardback books, right? And, and part of that's a celebration of that whole concept. And, and to me, yeah, the analog version of gaming books is a wonderful thing. So, you know, that's a, that's an artistic expression too, or it can be. Um, when we create and craft the limited edition version of the Rizzo's, you know, I always think about something called elegance in a product. You want it to feel right, right? It needs to have that hand feel. Um, if you look at reviews for Smoking Worm, <clears throat> and I scour the internet for them pathologically, right? No, I'm just um, <laughs> You're a braver man than I am. <laughs> every once in a while, I go out just before a Kickstarter and I look for reviews because I like to put them in the Kickstarter and say, hey, look, this is yeah. what other people are saying. Oh, good idea. And, and link to that so that people can go look at Daniel Bishop's, you know, review of issue one and stuff. And, and, and there are two things that keep popping up in the reviews. Um, the first is a comment about the physical nature of the limited editions, the feel of them, and more importantly, the smell. I have like 10 comments out of maybe 15 reviews, right? So two thirds of the people look at it and say, oh my God, it, it smells like a book, right? It smells like what my memory of opening a book was when I was in elementary school, you know, when books were really printed on printing presses and they weren't right. just digitally printed. And so, and that's what the risographic process brings to it. And, and so I think of it, I think of the, the product needs to be elegant, right? And so that's the artistic expression, which to me is just as well, important as the writing. Yeah. I mean, for your product, it does. I, I, my way of thinking would be it just depends on what you're doing because some things it's like it may not but other things are because i think you're trying to hearken back to something uh when i say hearken i don't mean in a, in a negative way but i mean you're trying to bring about the, the feelings of of products of yesteryear but with m modern sensibilities so i think you know that's definitely true but there might be other things it's like it doesn't really matter maybe some things sure. it would make it worse it's just you know, I'm kind of looking at different things I'm planning on doing, but some things like that slick paper on Mixum, you know, it's kind of nice, but other things like, no, I think I just want some raw paper. I don't, I don't want that smooth feeling. It just depends on what the product is. Uh, I agree. And so that's what I mean by, by um, elegance, right? And yeah. so elegance isn't, it's not a fancy dinner like that rich people have to me. Elegance is that the product is designed to explicitly meet the needs of the designer's intentions. Does that make sense? Yeah. So um, you're absolutely right. First of all, the mission statement for Smoking Worm is to hearken back to the 70s, to look and be informed by not just the original OD&D, but the original people who came out with zines. And so it's actually led me to collect um, mainly British zines because it turns out the British, British zine scene in the 70s was massive um and the beholder and um 
and, and, and several other ones, uh, Troll Crusher and things like this. These are progenitors. These are people who would go on to found Games Workshop with Troll Crusher, right? So they got their first sensibilities, their first tastes in these little zines. They cost 30 pence or 10 or 15 pence. And, uh, and, and those issues now sell for two and $300 because only maybe a hundred of them were sold. And so we look right. at that sensibility and we say, what did that, how does that, what's that feel? What's that evoke? And then also what topics were they covering and what conversations were they having and, and everything. And so the smoking worm is designed to specifically be a retrospective modern publication. Right. And when you read it, it should feel comfortable. Um, let me give you an example of something that doesn't feel comfortable to me when I read it, Morkborg. But that doesn't make Morkborg a bad product because the intention of Morkborg is punk and the intention of punk is to make you feel uncomfortable. Right. Right. And so that's an elegant design too. Yeah. Um, and I've not, I don't own Morkborg, uh, but I've seen it. I do like what they're doing with the graphic design. You're right. Yeah. It is. But I also find that there's other people who are pushing it more to the point where it's uh, it's not very readable. I find it not very usable. Um, so that's the compromise, the right? Yeah, so you, absolutely. You find it, but then look at Phil Reed, who just put something out on, uh, you know, our, our um, uh, the RPG Zine Group, and it's just like he embraced the aesthetic, but it's like it's beautiful, it's readable, it's like. You know, there's you can have things being a little bit hard to read, but if it's all not hard, it's all hard to read, then it's it's unusable. But he just seems to really know where to strike that balance with the with the graphic design of his product. Yeah, and 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 so that comes from uh, knowledge depth, right? Phil Reed's knowledge base of the role playing game industry is huge, and so so I, I think it's a wonderful he's a wonderful presence on the RPG Zine group. A, because he's a major contributor to the group, right? So he talks all the time on there. Right. Um, and B, because he shares his knowledge freely uh, because he, he, you know, doesn't seem to be threatened by anybody. Obviously, he shouldn't be, <laughs> no, right? Right? There's no reason to be. And so he's just like, hey, um, check out the new format thing, you know, the accordion book. I saw that at GameholeCon. And I, it, first of all, it was much bigger in person than I thought it was going to be. Um, it was impressive and, um, and everything. And then he has this new fold-out map idea that he's printed now, and, and he's got a Kickstarter coming out. He's already done one on it. And I look at that. Actually, I immediately contacted that company because I have a new product line that will come out next year called Sandbox Set Pieces. These are meant to be locations that are just deeply explored and by deeply explored i mean it's it's not just a map with some descriptions it's a map and what i'm looking for is is a design ethos in there where 90 or 95 percent of the art is intended for the viewers which would be the, the players not the judge um and yet what the judge gets on the judge side of things is exactly what a judge needs, which is data and and kind of a heads up display inside the product. Right. So all the uh, all the images that I have artists produce are, are things that they can that a judge can actually show a player. This is a picture of the room. This is what the monster looks like, and they don't come in the module, so you don't have to like, okay, I'm going to hide this piece of the module. I'm going to show you just this image or or half this image because the image is actually a fight scene ev evoking 
this room and if you actually look at the fight scene it's giving away what the room does right that's not what i want and so so the it, it'll come in a box set i believe the first one it's going to be called house of the petrified frog and um, and it's just a location it, it comes with no plots necessarily we give some suggested plots but the the judge gets to use this as they want it's just a deeply richly evoked location a set piece and it'll have cards. It'll have um, a randomized deck of cards. I'm, I'm, we're, gonna, we're playing with a new concept of um, selective identification, um, which is a way of creating um, um, selective filtering for players. So if you have, think about it. When we were sitting at Game Hall Con chatting, things were going on around us, either behind me or behind you or to the side, to the periphery of us that we were both aware of, but you might've been aware of something more than I was. Right. Right. And the same thing is true when a party enters in a space, right. If you've got a gaming group, they come into the space and, you know, you have a little, maybe a little blurb that describes what the space looks like, smells like what they hear sights and sounds and everything. But, but each individual character, because of their unique background and personality and all the things, the gestalt that makes up that character concept is going to notice things differently. The thief is going to be intuitively looking for thiefy things, right? Or the uh, the warrior is immediately a threat assessing the space and things like this. And uh, and so what we did was with almost with most of the major locations, um, we provide the description, but we also provide a randomized list of things that people could encounter. Those will be on a card form, so I can literally hand out cards and say, okay, just pick a random card. Or I can I can have people roll like a D8 and I'll say, okay, so you notice this little tidbit and you notice that little tidbit. And sometimes they're important. Uh, they're always important. Um, sometimes they're meant to evoke atmosphere. Sometimes they're meant to evoke atmosphere and give you an important precursor piece of information, a hint of what is going on in this space. And so what we found is it creates suspense and it helps immerse players in the location. Right, because they're getting individual pieces of information. They're getting, and, and we actually present it in a very specific format. We read the description, we hand out the random information, we give them a moment to digest that, and then you ask the question, "What are you doing?" Right, and the player has a choice at that point to either share the information they've learned or not share it, and to be informed by it or not be informed by it. Does that make sense? So it. Right. it, it um, Daniel J. Bishop talks about it as context. And so what we're really doing is giving additional individualized context that helps the players. And what it does is it builds suspense and it, and it sucks them into the space. And they're, and they're immediately thinking about that space much more than they would normally. And, um, and I, I think it, it helps focus everybody. So we'll see if it works. Yeah, it's a, right. it's a new concept. Um, and so, you know, we're really trying to push the boundaries on this and, and think of what is it about great module design and great set piece design that makes it useful? Um, and, and what is usefulness? I, and I think that's probably the, to me, I think that's probably where things fail the most, both me as a GM and also a lot of times as adventures is really, it seems like the room a lot of times or the area that's described really, there really isn't much about it that's, that makes much difference. You know, like, right. like, for instance, we were playing, which uh, <laughs> I haven't railed about for a long time, but we're, we're playing a little bit through the descent to Avernus. And one thing I noticed is when the GM put the map up, 
and the map had all these details, ideas started running through my mind. Okay, I'm going to take that table. I'm going to throw it down those stairs. You know? Right. Or I wouldn't have thought of that. Or I'm going to do this. Or I'm going to do that. Based on it's like, it's interesting, you know, that because I was, had visual information. I don't know if things were described if I would think of that. So it's just kind of interesting to, to think about because you, you as a GM, I mean, it's much more interesting to have the players interact with the environment during an encounter. And it's more interesting for the players to do that. But the question is, how do you make those encounters both you both in the way that you provide the players the ability to to understand what's there and and to be able to think about opportunities? You're right. There's a lot of different ways of doing this. And I don't think it's been probably properly explored or thoroughly explored and to figure out what's the best practices for that. Yeah. And, and you know that they were exploring it. This is a question, by the way, that goes all the way back to the very first modules, right? So if you were thinking about TSR, you know, I mean, the first very published module was Temple of the Frog, which was really a chain mail location. Uh, and, and that was in, I was at Blackmore. So the, one of the OD&D books, the first published independent module was uh, Vampire Queen and um, by uh, We Folk. And, um, and it was just a list of things with a, with a blank map. And then, you know, uh, Gygax starts working on things like Tomb of Horrors and Expedition to Barrier Peaks uh, very early on and the Giant series. Uh, and the difference between those three product lines, Tomb of Horrors and Expedition to Barrier Peaks have their own um, art sections that are meant for players. Yes. The G series uh, yes. does, right? And, and I find... Even though, you know, Tomb of Horrors, whether you love it, whether you hate it, whether you think it's good design or bad design, the, the, the fact that there is um, player-intended information that the players can see and interact, because, you know, because you have to think about how most people process information, but then you also have to think about how minority, the minority of people process information, and, and you have to realize that that is represented at your game table. Right, and there's so a distribution most, curve that holds everybody. Absolutely. And, and, that, and that's the reality of your player group, whether it's the reality of your character group or not is, is another issue. Um, and, and sometimes you have a player who may have a deficit, but they're playing a character that supposedly has an advantage in that area. And, and what I find is really hard is to help them achieve role-playing the advantage when they have the deficit, right? Because it's like trying to play a highly intelligent uh, character like that has an 18 or a super genius level intelligence when you've got an average intelligence player. Um, right. they, they have a hard time thinking about those things. So how do you mechanically represent it? How do you, how do you make it happen at, at the, in the game? Or even without... charisma is another one too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 And I, and you know, and, and so I've met people who aren't the most charismatic, but they want to play that, that Uber leader. Yeah, exactly. Just, and, just and, like I want to play a barbarian and I'm weak. Like, yeah, what's wrong with that? Right? Like, what, do I have to actually do physical things in the game to prove that I'm? I mean, no, I can't do that. I'm not physically. So why does somebody who doesn't have a high charisma have to be the most brilliant person speaking to the GM? So how do you work that out? Yeah, yeah. How do you work that? Out? And and if the thing I th I find interesting is if you look at most role playing game systems, they have no problems accepting the idea that you and I are not built like barbarians right right <laughs> yes you know that we're middle-aged 
that we didn't bodybuild for our lives, that we haven't been out on the frontier eating mammoths, that we really don't know how to carve apart, you know, uh, whatever. And we certainly don't know how to sword fight like Conan or, or Fafford or the Grey Mouser. But we can mechanically emulate that through a combat situation. But when it comes to intelligence or charisma, those things are looked down on. And there's, so that's an interesting concept yeah. of what your player group considers to be role-playing versus role-playing, right? Rolling the dice versus inhabiting the character. And, uh, and certainly those soft skill areas are the things that most people intuitively see as inhabiting the character. And if you, you either have it or you don't, and more interestingly, when your character doesn't have it, but you do, we just let it go. Right. 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 You've yeah. got the low charisma, but you're able to talk yourself out of everything. Yeah. Yeah. Because you as a person are charismatic. And, and, and your intelligence is low for your character, but you're using uh, personal knowledge to defeat yep. your, your knowledge of physics and chemistry and biology is allowing you to play a five intelligence rogue who's able to solve things using that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's what we're trying to, we're trying to look at that from a mechanical standpoint and say, what toolbox tools can we give the, the judge and the players to help them be in the moment and get the most out of that situation they can? And so, yeah, so, so to, to me, that's elegant design, right? Looking at something and saying, this is what I need for the moment. And, and whether that's, um, you, you know, using newspaper clippings to create titles or, you know, creating props and things like that. Um, you know, what is it that you need? And I, and, and I think it's a combination of that, right? So, and I think every product is different. Right. But, uh, cause I, this is kind of branching out in my mind in two different directions, but we'll kind of go back to the, uh, to the idea of using graphics for the play that's player facing graphics. But it is interesting that, you know, in in ninety nine percent of the, well, I mean, it's a lot. Yeah. So you so you as a GM, you buy an adventure or a module, whatever you want to call it, and it's got all this cool art, but it's all it's all aimed at you. The players can't see it. The only way you can show it to the players, as designed, is you just flip the book around and show them. But that just isn't practical, and it sometimes doesn't even make sense to, to do that. That's right. And so so like one of the things, the reason I created the the monograph, the smoking worm monograph, the sister publication to Tales from the Smoking Worm, is what is a monograph? A monograph is something that allows you to go in depth into a topic, right? Well, the first two monographs are actually adventures. Um, we're going in depth into a topic, but not in depth in the way that you would think. You know, when, I mean, everything's going to be detailed, but what I'm really doing is going in depth into the concept of how do you produce the product so that it's you and maximal maximally useful for the judge and maximally useful for the player and uh, and so that's what i'm actually yeah. exploring in these two and so for instance with the first one we reached out to a veteran industry uh artist his name is john cobb if you've never seen john cobb's art you should definitely look it up um he has a wild crazy frenetic um art style it's kind of like a if you're you were you're a comic book guy so it is, think of it as um, like a John Muth or Bill Sinkavich. Oh, yeah. Right? Um, so that's how you pronounce his name is Sinkavich? Sinkavich, yeah. And I know that 
because one of my buddies had a class with him. He actually took art classes from Bill Sienkiewicz. So, uh, yeah, because I used to call it Senkowitz, right? Yeah, I did and too. He's like, and he's like, no, no, no. He's like, he's like, I've been to art class now with him, and he, he chewed us out. It's Sienkiewicz. I'm like, fact, okay, fine. I, I got my daughters actually doing the layout for an uh, upcoming zine I'm doing. And uh, and for the cover, uh, she's – I told her – she may actually do the cover too. Um, and I and I just – I mean, this was just this week. I just pointed to, to Bill Sienkiewicz. I said – I want this. I don't necessarily want this, but this is what I want. I want this feel. Whatever this feel is, I can't describe it. <laughs> That's right. I want this. Yeah. It's kind exactly. of, it, it's a textury. It, it's not a collage, but it's got overlays. It's just a very textury. It's unsettling. His work is very unsettling. Yeah. Uh, it's proportions. Yeah. I don't know. It's color palette. It's whatever it is. Bill's got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he does. And and so yeah, so you look at like Electra Assassin or something like yeah. that and you're like you're like this is an amazing piece of art and it's fundamentally different than say uh, Nick Fury uh Agent of Shield, right? Yeah. Which is still beautiful, still uses some of the same characters, but is a is a different feel. It, it evokes something different and Sinkavich's art uh, evokes wildness and um unconstrained chaos, right? And, um, and, 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 you know, I, it's, you know, it's unease to me. Yeah. I don't, it is, it is, it is the, I don't want to say the feeling, but it's almost like you're watching. It's like a horror movie. It's like, it's like, there's an undertone of unease about it. Yeah. There's a savageness yeah. to his art. And so, so you look at John Cobb's art and John Carb. there's no straight lines. It's all, you know, clearly been, you know, done multiple, you know, drawn over multiple times and uh, and it has that that savageness, and so uh, Cobb has not done much in the industry. He was a very early White Wolfer, um, and so he was doing art for the first edition of Vampire the Masquerade, and then he kind of disappears. Uh, he was well known for Wraith and stuff, and I reached out to him. He is one of the people whose art deeply evoked, um, you know, my campaigns when I was running Vampire and stuff. And, and so it's, so it's, it was an absolute joy to actually reach out to him and say, Hey, uh, you know, I'm a big fan without saying I'm a big fan and, and just say, look, I, I have this product, a project, it's different. I'm looking for your type of art style. Are you interested in being involved? And, um, and he graciously said yes. And so, um, so that monograph, well, his is the only art in the entire thing. Uh, you know, he, we have 18 art cards, tarot size art cards that go with the product his is the only art that's in there um we we produce in tarot size decks so that you can show the players what the what the monster is and its stats will be on the back so you can quickly use them if you need um or we then take like uh, almost like uh think of as virtual tokens or pog like stamps of the faces of the characters and those are reiterated in around their stat blocks in the issue um, and then there's a map that gets parsed up and cut apart and everything and used in a couple different locations. But, um, but basically that's, you know, that's, that's his art and his style. And um, for the second issue, which is another adventure, we went with a totally different artist and, um, and, and his style is incredibly different than John Cobb's. They both well, that's fun because you don't feel beholden to have to maintain a certain um, aesthetic. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You, the, the format's the same, but the aesthetic can change. 
That's right. And so, so what I'm trying to build in the monograph is in my idealized mind, what tools do I as a, do I as a person need? Because I'm the person who, you know, I'm the only person I can inhabit, right? What do I as a person need while I'm sitting at the table and I'm running this to be absolutely on the page? There's a middle ground. There's a middle ground. There has to be, if there's not, we're all in trouble. Um, there, there, there has to be a middle ground between uh, a D&D module like uh, Avernus, right, which I found to be too dense and too much material to really to parse. This, to that, to that, yeah. Yeah, um, and the same thing was true with, like, I'm a big, uh, I'm a big Warhammer 40,000 fan, and when um, Fantasy Flight was putting out the Dark Heresy and, and all of the series of Warhammer 40K books they put, uh, gaming books they put out, I play tested 90% of a couple of those lines and I would routinely tell them, this is a cool module, but it, it shouldn't be 90 pages long of dense text, right? I, I can't access it right. uh, quickly. I have to, not only do I have to memorize 90 pages of text because I need to know what's going on at the beginning and the end to tell the story. I then need to be able to do that in game. And I'm, I'm, I'm having to resort to like writing on my book. Right, I'm having to highlight and make notes and create cliffs notes that hang off the side of my page. So while you have created a cool storyline and you've got awesome monsters and opponents and everything, it's so dense that I can't work with it as a judge. And I think, I, and be, I, I think because they approach it like a novel. I mean, the yeah. people that are probably are writers, there's writers, but you know, the thing is, is you're not writing a novel. And I think, like in my role, a lot of times I have to take very complicated situations and i have to distill it down and present it to people who are above my pay grade in ways that they can look at it analyze it and understand exactly what's going on within and not only a lot of times even using paragraphs you know sometimes just bullet points absolutely so there is a um there is a there is a scholar his name is michael tufty tufty is the last name for sure i can't remember if it's michael or not who talks about the language of data and data transfer. And, and, and that's what all a gaming module is, right? An adventure is simply data transfer. It's, it's a publisher transferring information to a judge who then transfers that information to players. But in the first transfer between publisher and judge, it needs to be informative. And in the second one, it needs to be um, a wonderful, gratifying experience, right? Because everybody needs to have fun. Or, or feel whatever emotion everybody's agreed to feel, whether it's fear or unrest, or depending on the type of role-playing game you're playing, that, that's supposed to be the fun component. Um, and so Tufty talks about how do you distill information in micrographics and things like this so that I can get the absolute maximum understanding of it with the minimal amount of investment of time and effort. And, um, and so he has like five or six books devoted to this concept. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I took a class, a workshop with him at a certain point in my career. And, um, and I was just blown away with the amazing amount of information he could distill into a single line, you know, that in the right context told me everything I needed to know about that. And, um, and so, so that's, that, those are kind of the things that we're pursuing with like the monograph series and with the sandbox set pieces and stuff in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, yeah, in a, in a, in a way. 
in like with Coriolis, which is like we've been running a Coriolis game. So, do you have you seen Coriolis? I've seen it. I haven't run it. My understanding is is it's like um it's like a hack of Traveler. Is that correct? Yeah, imagine Traveler with Event Horizon mixed with Dune, uh, with a very a little more air, um, um, more an Arabic theme to it. Nice. But, okay. But if you look at the book, it's beautiful. Yeah. It is probably I won't say one of the top ones, but it's definitely up there as far as beautiful book. And you flip through it, but when you go to use it, it's it's not a great book. <laughs> So I ended up going to the PDF and utilizing that a lot of times because I, I I can't find anything in the book. I cannot find anything in that book that I need. It is, yeah. it is I can read through it fine. I want to look stuff up, but I'm thinking, really, I, I I would really just be happy with the something more in the in the the black book version of Traveler. Even the little black books would be much preferable to what I got here as far as me as a GM being able to utilize this. Yeah. And, and so that's, that's the conversation that I think the folks um, like the, who publish Mork border having with the gaming community yeah. and mothership, right? How can you use design to evoke a feel, but also provide information? And, and, and like you said, sometimes it, it works wonderfully and sometimes it falls flat on its face. And I think the, the thing to take away from it in the end is even if Morkboard falls flat on its face for you, um, it probably doesn't for somebody else. And the same thing is true for like those fantasy flight role-playing oh, yeah. adventures, right? Somebody clearly bought them um, beyond me, even though I have 10 linear feet of them, um, you know, of, of products, um, you know, and they use them a different way. And, and the question is, is, is how do you find that sweet spot for what you're trying to produce that provides the maximal effort for your people. Well, I will say it is without a doubt uh, that the the sensibilities that was used to produce Coriolis is what largely sold Coriolis. Yeah. You know, but on the other hand, those same sensibilities that sell it also make it hard. And that's where, you know, you've, you talked about before, there's really, you know, there's a couple different things we, we look, you know, like sometimes books are more easy if they're laid out a certain way to read through and there's another way that they're better for use at the table and a lot of times they're not the same, but also, you know, creating a, a, a pleasant coffee table book just doesn't necessarily translate to a good useful one at the table, which makes me wish that there was two copies, which I would buy, but it doesn't make any sense. And, and, and I think you're, like I said, we're talking about threading a very delicate needle here, right? Yeah. You're looking for visual appeal, but you're also looking for visual information and fast acquisition of information. And, um, and, and, and what I find is that the majority of role-playing products fall flat on their face at that level, right? Think about, think about a longstanding um, pub, uh, um, product line, Shadowrun, right? I have, through first to fifth edition, 95% of everything that's been produced for Shadowrun. Love the game world love the concept, think it's a fun thing to play in. And yet in the later editions, four or five and six, I, I haven't gotten into, but issue, you know, four and five and three was a radical departure. Um, you know, they got away from just showing you formula 
you know, first and second edition had these, like, when you talked about a spell, it was drain, divided, you know, divided over two of your strength and everything. And if you understood how to read a formula, which they could break out for you in a diagram that would explain it, yeah. right, you could quickly access that information and move on. Um, a lot of that was missing from the fourth and fifth editions. And if they had taken and put the formula in there, and instead of writing dense paragraph text on this is a five-step process and just given me step one, step two, step three as bullets with formula, minimal words, that game would have flowed so much easier. We would have had less table time spent reading a book and rereading a book with the group trying to figure out how the hell you hack the matrix, right? Um, and Or cast a spell. Um, and be, And so it comes down to just because people produce a product doesn't mean they're good designers, right? And so you're looking right, for that good design Right, right. As, far as, the, as far as designing a book. They're great at designing yeah. maybe a system. Or a concept. The concept, you're right. But as far as then being able to communicate that, that's, that's another aspect. Yeah, and it's one of the things that I think is neat about zines, about the things that you and I are in, uh, interested in, is that we can, we can play with that for a minimal amount of investment and cost, right? And so, you know, one of my zines costs $15. Um, you know, Scoundrels was about, what, 12 or 13 bucks per issue. You had three issues. I think I paid 40 bucks for them or something. No, it's 24. 36. No, yeah. it's 24 for them, and it was, I think, $6. I can't remember. $4 shipping, so it's 28 Yeah. So, But that's a minimal amount of investment for you to play with the concept and figure out a way and, and, you know, and, and, and what I'm always looking for when I produce these little products is to get feedback. So I would love more people to give us feedback, positive and negative, right? This is where it fails for me. This is where it succeeds. Those are critical questions and you yeah. can't, you can't drive forward professionally or artistically without answering them. Yeah. And I think for me, I mean, the reason what got me started was at the table, I found books to be um, unwieldy in the way they were presented was unwieldy, both in, like, like say, let's say, for instance, I want somebody to roll up a character, a first-level character. For me to hand them, like, a 400-page book just is dumb. It, and to go through all those options they don't need to do. And also, yeah. there's things at the table, it's like I just kind of wanted to have together. So once I, once the concept of a zine, like, I, I grokked it with uh, Ray Otis, and uh, when I was listening to Plunder Ground, whatever I was listening to, it's just like all of a sudden the lights went off. I think it was on uh, MeWe. That's when I started going through um, the books I had in PDF, and then I would put them into a zine format and format it in a way that was digestible for me. Right. Yeah, and so, and so for me, that came out of, you know, I have written products and material for internal consumption since the beginning, right? We've been hacking D&D or Vampire or whatever game I'm playing since I started gaming. I, to me, that's a fundamental part of the game is, is tailoring it to your group's needs and what you want to tell your story. Um, but it wasn't... Uh, the zine format for me came about... Well, I owned a couple, Right. So it wasn't even, I owned them and didn't even realize they were zines, right? I, I have, uh, I have all the Arduin and, uh, the Delos books, Delian book of the dead and, and, and Delian book of monsters and stuff like this. And, and I know those since the late eighties and they were just part of the repertoire. And it wasn't until 
you know, I think it wasn't until Goodman Games and I saw those digest format modules that I was like, oh, you know what I mean? And then I saw, you know, you go to a convention. I see the light. <laughs> uh, yeah, you go to a convention and one of the wonderful things about Goodman Games, one of the reasons why, uh, beyond the fact that I think DCC has is the system that I'm most attracted to right now to run in, um, is, is their support for zines. At, at Gen Con, almost nobody had any zines. Right. Well, there were major vendors missing this year, but let's go back to 2019. And and yet a third of the Goodman booth is devoted to zines. Right. One side of their work is all third party products. There are things that are licensed under them for free, but are approved by them. And, and, and you know, uh, you know, they're all different people's products and ideas sitting there. And um, and that's a really cool thing to think about because Goodman doesn't make as much money off of those products as they do off their own. No. And so to devote a third of your booth space, facing booth space to care people to other people's products and promote those um, is, is it once a sacrifice, but also it's not entirely altruistic. I mean, they benefit from no. it. They, they benefit because it, it, it's building an audience. It's, you know, for the core books, but I think it just, I think as long as you keep having product coming out, especially if you get a, a lot of people doing things, um, it, it, I think it keeps a buzz about your, your own product. So, you know, people keep Absolutely. doing Mutant Crawl Classics stuff. You know, everybody's like, oh, what's Mutant Crawl Classics? And, you know, and it, and it looks like even if they're not producing work continuously, maybe they are, maybe they're not, but at least, I don't want to say it gives appearance, but there is that appearance that, in a sense, they are producing work still continuously. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, I totally agree. So, you know, but I, but I ran across those things. And I was like, Oh, I, I actually know what this stuff is. Right. I mean, I never put a name on it and I start, I bought, I bought several of them and went home and read them. And I was like, you know what, this is a great format for me to put my ideas into. Right. Um, we have things that my group has iterated to the point where we're just super happy with it. And instead of having just a regular printed word file that everybody can look at, why don't we lay it out? Why don't we make it pretty? Why don't we make it usable? And um, and then the next step past that is, is well, if we're going to go to all that trouble, <laughs> we, we should put some art in there. We should make it useful. And maybe we should, you know, sell it to others because other people would might be interested in it, too. And um, and so. Yeah, so that's kind of how I how I got into it. Um, but I have a huge backlog of product that I would, you know, ideas that I would love to turn into things. That's the funnest part of it, as a <laughs> right. That's where I'm at. I I still don't have the full team to make uh, to get all that to happen, but I'm working on it. <laughs> well, and and so you have to find your own way. It, it so yeah. happens, you know, that um, that I had the team most of the team there. And then once uh, smoking worm two came out and we were, we looked like, Oh, we're going to be successful, right? This is going to be a thing that we could continue. Um, um, actually I found my content editor. I, I swiped my content editor from Jim Wampler's scientific barbarian. Um, uh, get over, I think it's gecko editing Kath, and uh, she's wonderful. Um, and then I found my content editors uh, through one of the artists that I know. And I was like, you know, this is a person who I know I've had these conversations of, of diversity and, and everything. And I want to make sure that I represent people's different viewpoints. And, um, and so I, I went back to her and I said, Hey, who do you know, who does this, you know, for in the gaming side? Cause I didn't know of anybody and she put me in the right direction. And, um, and so, 
you know, that well, was it, a, it takes money because oh. I don't think people realize, you know, we just finished a $3,000 Kickstarter. And then once we're said and done, I, I, I need to uh, clear out the books and say, and uh, we're splitting the proceeds, but it really only comes down to probably about maybe about $1,200 and we're splitting among us. So there's only about $300 made. There's, there's not, you can look at a Kickstarter and say, oh, they made $10,000, but a large chunk of that's shipping. And then you start looking at, oh, are they paying somebody to do layout? Are they paying somebody for art? Are they paying somebody to do some sort of copy editing? Are they paying somebody to do developmental editing? Are, you know, you start looking at that, it's like, these are not like cash cows for the most part. No, right. And so that's where you look at someone like, um, you look at Mothership and you're like, those people deserve the money they just got. Yes. Because, uh, because it is a lot of effort and they have put years of groundwork in there and really created the licensing agreements to allow it to proliferate and hit a, and found the right niche. And so, um, and so, yeah, absolutely. And, and you, to me, you want to support the endeavors that you personally find enriching, whether that's ethically enriching or creatively enriching or whatever, materialistically enriching. Um, but you also want to make sure that you're supporting those creators, right? And so I don't have a problem with people making a profit, certainly. Um, and I believe we all make those value judgments every time we buy something. Um, so they're inherent to our system. But yeah, I mean, it, stuff costs money, right? Yeah, because I, mean, I was cont- doing the analysis on one project I'm thinking of, but I'm thinking if I pay three cents a word, I keep the layout minimum, I really need to fund probably about, about you know, about still about two or $3,000 to make sure everybody gets paid at three cents a word. And I yeah. have a little bit of money. And it's really about, really probably about uh, $6,000 where I could probably pay everybody six cents a word and not be a problem or maybe even a little bit higher. So you really do need to kind of fund at higher levels just to be able to afford to pay people what, what you really would like to be paying them. I might say like to pay for them. I mean, paying what's reasonable in a professional way. Because right now it's at three cents a word. It's just a hobby. Somebody just doing it for a favor because they just want to do it. It's not, you're not really hiring somebody who's, I don't want to say that. Not somebody who's making it for a living, but. You know what I'm trying to say. Well, three cents a word is not a living wage. No, but the thing is, is you know, it's it, right. And, but not everything has to be a living wage. But you absolutely. Want, but you want people. But you, you as a as a creative who has your own product, you want to be able to pay people the value that they that they are giving. And you, the problem is, you may not be able to sell at that level. Is where the where the issue is. Yeah. Right. And you have to be honest about that. Right. And so yeah. there are people who I have talked to who would have been, who would have wrote, written great pieces to add to smoking worm, a great article here and there or something, but their bottom line of what they could, of what they could do it for was too high for what yeah. I can charge. And, you know, and I would say, I would respond and say, I absolutely respect your right to price your work at this level. There's no question here. You know, don't think I'm, I'm trying to lowball you. Um, but I don't have the circulation and I don't have the, the audience depth to support that level of payment at this point. And so I'm just, what I'm going to do is, is, um, is I'm going to go find other people to do other things so that we can increase it. And I will come back to you when I think I can afford that. Well, there's a person I approached who I, who I really love is this person's a great person. Um, 
And he gave me, he says, well, I normally work for this, but we can negotiate. And, uh, and it's like, I can't afford that. I don't feel great about asking him. <laughs> it's like, he said he would do it. He won't say his name. So he said he'd, he'd do it for th 10 cents a word. He usually likes more. And he said, but I would really like to work on your project. And I just thought, you know, what I could do, I, I wrote back at this person. It's like, what I can do, um, is it still very vague? I thought was, I could just not have him do as large of an amount too. I could say, well, maybe I can afford X, um, but I just, I can't afford, you know, 5,000 words, but I can afford a thousand words, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, cause there's people, it's like, it would be fun cause they are great people and you want to have them on your project, but it's like, but it, you, you just, there's physics, there's economic physics. It's, yeah. There's, there's a limit. And, and, and so, you know, these, and these are artistic endeavors. And so my, my standing line is, is I always accept what the artist believes they're worth. Right. When I, 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 uh, I collect original art. Um, you can't see it, but on the wall back here, I've got a whole bunch of Stefan Pogart right now uh, and stuff. And I collect original art and I never, ever negotiate a price. Right. When the artist tells me this piece of work is worth this much money, I say, you're absolutely right. It is. And I can either afford it or I can't. Right. And if I can't afford it, I'll tell them, I agree with you. It is worth that. I can't personally afford that. I hope you find a buyer who can buy, pay you that. Right. Uh, and, and, and leave with a, with a, with a good conscience. Right. And if, and if the price they quote me is a price I can afford, I say, I'll happily pay that for you. And so um, what I started doing for a potential, I got a couple of potential projects, but I start approaching people, even though I know that, that it's lower than probably what they necessarily need, but I've been just leading with, okay, I can only, I can only work forward three cents a word, but I'll probably set up some sort of gradient as far as pay based on, you yep. know. And so, you know, if, if you just lead up front with people saying, I can afford this, you know, maybe an artist says, hey, you know, this is my normal sense, say, well, I can afford this. I'm willing to take something less whatever. Like, to be honest, um, there's a lot of people that do pen and ink I like to, in a lot of ways, things that look semi-unfinished. Yeah. You know, I like, I don't necessarily need a full this or that, you know, so there may be some middle ground that the artist will, you know, come to you and say, you know what, that's fine. You yeah. Say, you and, know, and I love it looking penciled, but with just certain parts of it finished, I'm happy with that. That's actually even more preferable. Sometimes, yeah. And so, so my artists often, they often turn in sketches that are so good. I'm just like, let's just stop there. Right. I'm good with this. This is it. This is it. We're done. Um, and, and then they'll go further and ink it and everything. And I'm like, Oh, the inking's awesome too. But, but I was happy at the sketch. <laughs> right. And, um, and that's, and that's a design aesthetic as well. Um, and I agree with you. I, you know, my bottom line is, is honesty is the best policy, especially when we're talking about economics and finance and, and the underlying workings of how zines work uh, when you've got a team, uh, or when you're trying to put together a team and, and I mean, look at um, Onyx publishing, right? The guys who resurrected white wolf from the grave, literally um, uh, with their white, you know, with their 20th anniversary products. Um, if you go back and look at their Kickstarters, their Kickstarters always have one or two price points where, Hey, we hit the stretch goal and this stretch goal happens to be a pay bump for the writers. This stretch goal happens to be a pay bump for the artists, right? And so clearly when I take from that, although this may not have been what happened, is that they were upfront and said, 
we could pay you this, we guarantee you this amount, right? We're going to give you this minimal amount. But if we hit these stretch goals, you know, we will build stretch goals in where you get pay bumps. Yeah. And, and so, you know, if, you know, uh, you know, a rising tide floats all boats, right? Yeah. And it's what's like, look, if we're doing great, this works. And, and it's important to be honest about the economics, the underlying economics of your publishing uh, to the point where you can say, I really can only afford to do this, but if we hit this level, I could afford to do that. And so perhaps if you help me promote, we hit that level, you get the better paycheck. Yeah, what I'm what I'm trying to do is uh, the reason I'm also going for the lower amount is my plan is to pay people ahead of publishing. Yeah, and so so I try that too. I'm, I'm kind of, and that's where I mean I, I the. I was listening to the episode of RPG Ramblings that you had uh, last week with uh, with the three or four Kickstarter yeah. uh, uh, authors and everything, and and one of your um, guests, I forget who it was, said the point of the Kickstarter is to pay for that project plus the next one and anything right. else is gravy. Doug Cole, and, yeah, yeah, and I completely agree with that, right? And so what I want to be able to do is pay for this project, pay off everything I've got to pay off, pay ahead to so that people know they're getting paid. And that I, they know that I can pay them and I'm honest about that and then make the money I need to, to subsist and get through the day. Well, there's and, a, there's that part, you know, yeah. th- th- there should be money hopefully left over. Uh, initially you don't want to count on that uh, and you're willing to sacrifice it, but there's a point where if you're going to continue to do this, there needs to be an economic reason for you to continue to do so. Yeah. Well, even if it's so much as, I need to be able to tell my significant other that this is, this is paying for the time that I'm investing in it. This is that, that, you know, the gardening wouldn't be a better endeavor simply because we produce vegetables and that's a payoff. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. That, uh, that, that, uh, being a picker wouldn't be a better option. <laughs> right. That's right. The, uh, so, so what I did with during the Madlands, which absolutely worked, I mean, I didn't, so I put an open call for people to, 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 to um, participate and to contribute. And it, it was basically only was just a couple people that actually committed to doing it. And the whole thing was, you know what, we'll just split. However this comes up, we're just splitting it even. I don't care who, what, how much, whatever. It's just, we split it up. And once I got that done, it's like, oh, this is how much it produced at this level at this cost. Yep. So now I know I now I have a baseline to understand, okay, the next one where we stand that I should assume I could probably because really the I charge 19. I probably should have charged maybe I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably raise the next one to maybe twenty two dollars, um, raise three dollars. And I'm thinking about dropping the PDF cost down to like three dollars. But, but at least I say, okay, if I increase this by this much, it's about the same as it was before. I should expect a minimum of this amount of money. So then I feel more comfortable paying for things up front because at least I know, even if it doesn't quite fund to that level, it probably should be reasonably close. And if I do come out where it doesn't, it would only suck up the profit that would be going to me. Right. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's no, it's a, it's a somewhat safer experiment, but you know, like but the first one, you know, who knows if I would have paid, you know, people, you know, if I would have 
if I would have hired out the writing and I would have paid 10 cents a word and would have spent, you know, a thousand dollars on art, I mean, it would have destroyed me. (laughs) So, so that's an experiment, right? And, and, and I had an advantage with the smoking worm in that I had a buddy, you know, Joel, who is a good, really good artist who isn't doing art professionally, unfortunately, um, that I, you know, I kind of, you know, Brian and I cajoled back into doing art. He had left art altogether, but, you know, he was the guy that got me into role-playing in the beginning. And, and when he, when he realized that Brian and I were serious about moving forward, he was like, okay, I'm willing to contribute even if we don't make money. And so just having him on board then helped roll things forward. Right. Yeah. And so, so that was a unique advantage. And the other thing that was really unique was he brought people from the Kubert school with him who weren't doing art either, but were phenomenal artists. So this is something that I find interesting is, is that like there are a ton of people who are trained in art who don't get to do art. And, and both of both Joel and the other individual, um, you know, we've I've had conversations with them over time because we're about two years in now since issue one. And, um, and, and they both said, you know, this is, this is phenomenal. I never thought I would get paid in the end. You know, I had lost hope that I was going to get paid to, for doing art. Right. And this isn't enough. His we're not parents are right all these years, for all these decades. Yeah. His parents are right. You're wasting your time. You're wasting you your wasting money. And, and he, obviously many people go and get trained and become professionals in the comic book industry or, or, or whatnot. But these guys weren't. And, uh, and they had gone into other endeavors for whatever life mysteries you know whatever paths they'd had to tread down and um but and so so you know i found it in, in insanely gratifying to be able to help them get to that published format and and send them copies and say you can show mom and dad this actually works right you could get paid you can do beautiful things and it's not right. just something that's sitting in your closet gathering I, dust and i think to me this also demonstrates something that i kind of that kind of i really sincerely believe in the idea there's um there's kind of a couple things is that uh, one is there's a, a a theory of about collisions and uh-huh. opportunities happens through collisions so the more collisions there are the more opportunities present themselves and sure so the more you're colliding with other people as far as making connections uh then they just it, it it it's more people talking and more people communicating and and things more things just happen and i think the other thing too is sometimes you've got to actually start doing a thing and commit to doing a thing and make those actions happen and then the way is not clear because everything i've done so far the way is not clear i just do it and then it becomes clear as i do it <laughs> i agree i may and- circle around you just have to do it yeah. And so, so for that very first issue of smoking worm, we had no clue and yeah. we had no budget and, and, you know, and my, and like Brian and John would tell me, well, how much are we going to pay for this? How much is it going to make? And I'm like, I, I, I don't <laughs> want to think about those things. Right. This is not, if the primary motivator is capitalism, okay, we're going to make a widget. We're going right. to sell it for as much, but this is an artistic endeavor uh, for me. And, and, and to me, just having the final, finished public you know thing in my hand is worth the work and i'm willing to pay for the whole thing right even if we fail right um and and i think that's just it what is the cost you're willing to pay because it's time and money there's two different things and it could be other things too 
Well, certainly time represents um, a lost commitment to other things. Yeah, it's, right? a, it's an it, opportunity it, cost. It's an opportunity cost. You are not spending that time necessarily with your family. You're not spending that time pursuing other hobbies. You're not spending that time doing work. You're yeah. not spending that time doing whatever it is that other uh, you could otherwise be profitably doing it for whatever profitable thing, whether it's right. a uh, you know relationship profit, or socially financial profitable, profit. or yeah. economically profitable. So you're giving up that time, and then you're also giving up your money, which, by the way, represents your time, right? Because you you had to use time in order to get the money to fund the whole project, and so you're ultimately just giving up time to produce it. And so at what point? Does it, is it too much? And I think that's an individual measure. Let me give you an example. Um, I recently supported a Kickstarter called the Unseen Jack Cats. Now, Jack Cats was a comic book artist, is a comic book artist, uh, but was a comic book artist uh, contemporary of Jack Kirby. He published in a lot of the same venues. Um, he was partially in the Golden Age, partially in the Silver Age. Um, and he has a whole project called the first, I think it's called the first kingdom. Um, and, um, and so he had disappeared off the face of the planet as far as anybody was concerned. And it, and, and you know, his projects, they just kind of fallen into the background noise and yeah. nobody was really celebrating them. And, uh, there was a comic book writer who ran into Jack Katz in a pub in like Edinburgh. Right. And he was and they were sitting there drinking and Jack Katz is like, well, you want to come back to my studio and see what I've been working on? This guy's like 94 years old. And for 20 years, he has been doing comic book art by himself, writing his story and not sharing it with anybody. Right. And the so muse, he, the muse was prodding this whole time. The muse did yeah, not leave. The muse did answering not the muse. Yeah. And, and there was no there was no hope or or intention of selling it or anything it was simply for his own self-gratification and this artist you know or this this author came and looked at it and said oh my gosh this is wonderful stuff and it finishes up a story that you started like 50 years ago and so they then ran a kickstarter to get that published Neat. and uh, and and so you know and so that's where the unseen jack cats comes from this is all the stuff you, you don't know about that jack cats is finishing and um and so yeah so at what point does it become too much and and everybody's is different right i think for so, scoundrels which you know to me was my first actually foray into the kickstarter and, and really trying to produce professional product i think if i had known ahead of time how much time i would have spent doing it i probably wouldn't have done it <laughs> it's just, it's sure. so but once i did it i'm glad i did but man i spent a lot of time <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, and, and what I find is, is this is the same thing. There's a, there's a time curve commitment, right? And the, the time curve commitment usually goes down as you repetitively do the same right. thing. And so, um, you know, uh, it's just like anything that you learn how to do. Cutting onions is slow at first, but when you get really good, it looks like you're committing magic, right? right? And onions are just falling apart around you. And so the same thing is true with, uh, with zines, right? And so the first issue took us a year and a half. The second issue took us half that time, except the pandemic got in the way. And it was, it, even though we had it done, it took us forever to get it published because of the pandemic. Um, the third issue was even shorter. Yeah, with so. the, the journey in the Madlands, uh, the problem, I mean, I, you're right, because the, like, the, the layout design, even the format, I didn't know. And I kept, I don't say kept changing, but it just took me a while till I finally 
till everything finally hit, like what should be the format and what should be the length, what should the layout be like? And it took a lot of time, you know, but my thought was to go to a smaller zine for the next ones, but it seemed like consensus is no, keep it the same. But the nice thing about keeping the same is like you said, it's already done. You know, the word count I already know, the headers I already know, but all the layout's already done. There's no more extra <laughs> mental energy and angst and emotional churnings you know, that I go through. It's like it saves a whole lot just to take what you've done and just keep going with it. Yeah, yeah. And so once you have a style built for that, that product line, that's a great thing to have. Um, and to try and be consistent. And I think we can learn things from professional publications about that too. You know, Dragon rebranded multiple times, uh, White, White Dwarf Magazine rebranded multiple times. And looking at those branding incidents when they change their format and they change their layout and they change their style are, are interesting periods in their existence. Oh, yeah. And, and so um, you can look at that and say, you know, what is it that changed? What was it? Why, why was there even a need for change? What was the expressed desire for that? Um, what do you think? I mean, and you could interview people, right? Tim Cask is still around. Right. And we could ask the question, you know, when, when Dragon Magazine rebranded to this, why was that done? Sometimes it's financial. Sometimes it's, you know, artistic. So. Well, and I think definitely right. And I think that's the same thing with zines today. I mean, we're kind of, you know, there's a, there's different sensibilities that are evolving. There's new sensibilities, there's old sensibilities. Yeah. And sometimes if you want to, if you want to mean, okay, like, like talking with uh, Zach for the, the previous one, uh, we were talking about, it's like, you know, if you're in, if you're doing a 5E product on Kickstarter, you need to have something that looks like something similar to the 5E trade dress, or at least have that level of competency about it. If you're doing mutant crawl classics, uh, you don't have to. You can you can go, you know. Some people have done very low low-fi art and done fine with you know the you know dungeon crawl classics or mutant crawl classics, whatever. And so it just depends on the feel you're going for. You do have that option, but if you are trying to set a, if you're doing a Morkborg, you better you better be pushing the envelope in weirdness, or nobody's going to want it because that's not what they're wanting. So yeah, I yeah. think there's definitely what is your going back to aesthetic it's really the aesthetic what aesthetic are you trying to convey right and then the then the question on top of that where you get to i think elegance is does that aesthetic make it is that a useful aesthetic for what you are trying to get across for making it a, a usable product right because there are some pieces that we look at and are like that's like you said that's a beautiful coffee table piece uh and then you look at it and say well, this is more like a stereo instructions um you know those are two different aesthetics and they have two different outcomes and and if you could marry them both, that would be a wonderful thing. But it's hard. Yeah, and I think I think one we can we could probably <laughs> this might be heresy. But I mean, one of the most terribly put together designed um, RPG books is also probably the one of the most celebrated. And sometimes it's just fun to read through. Is the Advanced Dungeons and Dragons GM's Guide? I mean, that is just that's just a hot mess. But yeah. but there's yeah. a certain amount of pleasure of of discovery of flipping through wonder there's a there's this cartoon here that's funny you know i mean everything is just such a but in and of itself it is its thing it is its thing and it and it is both the best of things and the worst of things at the same time yep 
Yeah, I, I totally agree. It has um, it has idiosyncrasies, you know, uh, syncrasies that no no other product has, right? And and you're like, wow, that's just you know, who would have thought that Gary Gygax would need a sub table on Harlots? Um, but it's there, or you know, I mean, or potion missability, right? I mean, that's a wonderful concept, um, you know, and and it, and you you but you notice that it it really has never come back. No. Right. And so, so, you know, is it, is it that this table was the Uber table? No other table needed to exist after this table because they solved it and they solved it so perfectly. Or is it that it was a redundant piece of information that nobody needed? Or is it that they just forgot? <laughs> you or know? is it just, there's a bunch of stuff he just needed to fill a uh, page count with. And he's like, Hey, give me your ideas. And he just put it all together in a stew and you, or a smorgasbord. You just pick what you want. Yeah. Yeah, it's a smorgasbord. Yeah, do, do, those meatballs—they they look like they've been sitting there a while. I don't know. I really like them. It's like yeah. leave alone. So no, I agree with you. Uh, and so those are interesting things. And it's interesting that there's an entire subgenre of gaming that attempts to emulate those products, right? Evoke the feel. Yeah, and then maybe outdo it. Yeah, it's uh, that one's going to be hard out. I don't think anybody can ever top whatever. The, that's an archetype. That is the archetype of Gary-ness, and I don't think anybody can ever out-Gary Gary. No, I would agree. Yeah. You can only ape it. You can never, you can never truly, never truly uh, do what that is. I, I don't, you know, it's like certain authors. One of my favorites is G.K. Chesterton. You can't, there, there's nobody like G.K. Chesterton. There never will be. It's just that he's a product of, the, of a time of sensibility in his brain wiring. I mean, there's no, you'll never have that combination again. Yeah. No, absolutely. So. Well, I think we're hitting the, the time space continuum and <laughs> I'm going to probably need to process this thing uh, to, to, to launch uh, in a couple hours. So I think we uh, we'll call it a, 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 a stopping point at this point, Trevor. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on and uh, we're definitely going to have to do this again soon. Absolutely. I really enjoyed sitting down and talking to you. I look forward to it. Yep. Until next time. Yep. Have a great time. Happy gaming. Yeah. I, I, oh, go ahead. What, so I was saying, we didn't even get to what you would wanted to talk about, which was, you know, kind of the, 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 the next projects that I'm working on and stuff. Uh, the rebinding and everything, but yeah, I mean, like, it, it was just a backup in case needed it, but it's right. It, there was no, there's no agenda. Yeah. Yeah. And I like the format. I think, you know, it's one of the things I've enjoyed about your, about your podcast as I listen to it. I usually, to be honest, I listen to your podcast in the morning when I'm doing dishes. And so I always, I, we, we don't have a dishwasher. I do them all by hand. And, um, and so I'm making breakfast for everybody and I'm getting out the school and everything. And I'm, and I'm doing dishes at the same time, and I'm and I'm and I listen to this podcast in the morning. It, it it's like having talk radio on, yeah. And uh, and so, um, but talk radio about gaming, which is better than talk radio about politics, and so <laughs> by a yeah. by a mile leap, and uh, and so yeah. So this is yeah. That's it's you know I, I like the rambling format. I think it's cool. Well, well, thank you. Yeah, I, I just the thing is, is just. Really, what it comes down to, it, I think I mentioned the previously, it's like it's really about 
I guess it's really me as excuse to talk to people about stuff. So it's that's really what it is. Well, sure. And, and and stuff that's like I can ask, and we can talk about things that are interesting to me, and it may be interesting to other people. But there are usually things that you don't hear on other podcasts. Right. I mean, how how many podcasts do you hear about? You know, the economics and the underlying angst and structure of 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 design behind zines. It's just that's a it's a it's seriously a niche. Um, and, and, you know, but they're cool concepts to get at. And you know what? They're the things that, uh, like on RPG zines that we talk about, right? Yeah. Because they're, they're the things that matter to the people who are creating products. Yeah. And, and so, you know, um, I, I don't think, I don't think it's a misuse of time or effort. I think it's a, I think it's a valuable discussion point that, you know, it, it's great to get those folks on, um, uh, you know, and, and pick their brains. And so, and there's, and there's often things on, on your zine or on your podcast that uh, a guest uh, will say one or two things. And I'm like, ah, that's how that fits. That's how I should do that. Yes. You know, it may not even be, they may not even be talking about the topic that I have inspiration about, right? right. But, but it's just the talking about the process to me uh, among creatives is just as important as, as, reviewing the products right because the intentions behind the product are yeah. what we think about and the thing it's pretty obvious is is the feeling we're all in this together yeah and uh and i will say that i came the the gaming was so so at game Holcon. i mean it was just it was hard to hear and you know just dealing with the math i mean the mass part for me dealing with just making it hard to hear. I, wouldn't, I don't have a problem with masks, but, um, yeah, but, uh, but man, talking to you and to Levi and to Zach and to a whole slew of people, I, I was so cranked up. <laughs> yeah. I had to, I listened to, um, I had to listen on the way home. I drove home Sunday morning. I had to listen to Benny Goodman because my brain was spooling out so quickly. I had to get my, my brain under control while I was driving. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I, you know, and, and, and so I got to meet you, I got to meet uh, Levi. Um, I got to meet uh, Nick Baron. It was great. He and I have talked many times back and forth um, since we both do DCC zines and everything and stuff. And uh, you know, he came over from, uh, from Minneapolis for a day or Milwaukee for a day, uh, really half a day. And, and we sat down and I mean, we had a four hour conversation and it could have been 15 minutes. You know, I was just like, he was like, well, you know, I really need to get going. And I'm like, Oh my God, already. And he's like, well, it's like eight o'clock at night. And I'm like, wait, it's eight. And I had totally missed like shutting down the booth and everything with everybody and stuff. And, and we, and I was sitting 50 feet away for a moment and what, you know, we were just deep in conversation immediately and so that was, yeah, that was, that was actually my favorite part of game Holcon. Um, that, and I had, a, I did have one re uh, did you game upstairs at all? Yeah. So those were quieter places. Yeah. I had a game Sunday morning with Merle Rasmussen, the guy who created top secret. I did years ago. Yeah. About, and, about four years, three years ago. Yeah. And I, and, and, and that was a great game. We were the only ones in the room. So that was super quiet. And, um, so that was Sunday morning. We had a really good game. I love Merle. I mean, I yeah. love Merle. Yeah. He, he's just great. And, he, and he's so kind of open and warm. And, I know. Uh, and he, he just, and he, 
and he just has fun. And his wife comes in always about halfway through a session and just sits and quietly sits in the background and Knitting. sometimes corrects him. Yeah. Knits and, uh, or brings him a snack, right? She brings him juice at a, at a certain time. He gets like a, a like an apple juice or orange juice or something and, and, uh, and everything. So she's really protective of them. I think it's just a great, it's great to see that kind of relationship. And you're right. Uh, you're right. There's, you're like me. You pay attention to other things that are in the background. Yeah. And I appreciate it. I, the same thing. I mean, I appreciate that the whole thing too. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's just, I mean, well, you know, it's, I've, I've, I've been married for 28 years and, um, and it sounds like you've been married quite a while as well. Yeah. And yeah. yeah so I really appreciate when I see those relationships that have clearly they've been married for 50, 40 or 50 years. Yeah. And, and you're just like, you know, they're like one coherent unit, you know I mean? he's obviously doing things for her. She's doing things for him and she's keeping him going. And to me, that's just heartwarming. So, um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so I had, a, I, I enjoyed game hole but it, it was like you, it wasn't for the role-playing. It was, uh, it was for the, for the conversations. So there's also a fellow who is, did the Kickstarter for chew the role-playing game. Okay. Oh my goodness. Um, so I'm going to have to have him on just because he's dealing with IP. Yeah. Oh, and that's, that's, that's so interesting too. That guy was, that guy's amazing. And we talked yeah. for hours or we talked for a couple hours after the game. I mean, he was just, I could just see him just <laughs> fading. It's like, we better just go. But, 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 but he, he be very open about, you know, it just stuff. Like, you know, I got I had a guy, a person do my video I had two different people. You know, which one do I choose? Well, this one has an Instagram following of, you know, of like, you know, like say 10,000 people. That's other one doesn't. I choose yeah. the one with the Instagram following. It's like, yep. you know, it's like, what do they, you know, I hate to be that way, but just, so he starts going through all the things and dealing with the, dealing with IP. And it was his Kickstarter is going fun for like, only like maybe, I don't know what, it, if it did is ended, but it's like, it'll be like maybe sixty seventy thousand dollars I'm like, that's, I mean, for what he's doing, but then he was talking about, well, he's planning on making his money on the physical book sales. Yeah. And so he's kind of looking at that angle or you and I are not looking at it at that angle. Right. Well, so to me, the profit comes out of the standard edition publications, right? That's where yeah. I see my profit. And so it is book sales down the road. Um, if I well, make let me, money, let me, re- let me rephrase it. He's doing probably going to doing offset press paying for that. It's uh, going to go to game stores, and that's where his money's going to come from. Yeah, this yeah, that's a to whole, pay for that. Yeah, that that that's a whole different level of complexity that I don't want to think about. <laughs> you know, yeah. I I sell to my friendly local gaming store, and that's about it. Other than yeah. that, I deal with dealers, and um, and there's a whole host of reasons why I would do it that way. But it's it, most of it is is it's just too much of a hassle to do it otherwise. And, and I don't have the time again, it comes under bandwidth, right? I don't have the time to market it to everybody. So. Well, well, the thing is there's more sleepless nights when you're dealing at that level. Yeah. Like you and I, like, you know, if, if, if scoundrels would have flopped, you know, I was only out maybe a couple hundred dollars. You know, if, if I pre-fund everything for into the Madlands, pay for everything up front. You know, maybe I completely nothing happens. Maybe I'm out a thousand dollars. That's I'm not going to lose sleep over a thousand dollars. Yeah, no, but no. But I may lose sleep over thirty thousand dollars. 
absolutely right no you're right and so and so like for smoking worm number one uh we were working on that for over a year and so i was buying art actually kind of every month or every other month just you know it was like i was giving up you know i don't drink coffee but it's like giving up coffee for the month right i'm gonna give up coffee so i can fund a couple pieces of art and so i would give up a couple things and say this is my art slash fund for this month and i would hire a couple artists to do things and um and so over over a year of doing that you can build up quite a bit of art what I found amazing was that I used only maybe 10% of that art in the first issue. And so now I have all this art that's sprinkled all the way up to maybe issue eight or nine that I paid for, you know, yeah, that makes will sense. be years before I actually got to use it. But, um, but that's okay. But the, but the thing is right now, you know, you're having a line. I'm, I, there's a, there's a line that I'm kind of planning on doing, but like the stuff I've been doing is so sporadic. Yeah. You know, Scoundrels one journey in the Madlands, the other, and now the next one's going to be Fane of the fly God, which is completely something completely different you know where i think where you're saying you know what i'm going to do a dcc dcc zine you know you're going to use that art eventually you know what yeah. it is. well and so we get art half the time right we'll i'll get art back from an artist and i'll say this part's perfect or you know what now that we have this piece i know it would actually fit better in this other article coming out in two yeah. issues and so I want to move it there and I want you to produce something different for me. That's what um, I like to get, get people going and being working ahead. Cause once you're working ahead, then you can plan for things better. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think there's a level of, it's like a comic book. There's a level of a acknowledgement from the people who support you that they don't want to necessarily, I mean, sometimes they want to support a one-off product and they're done, but they don't want to miss out on a run right. and they don't want it to end too soon. Right. Because then they'll have a they'll have an incomplete feeling. It's kind of like having a six issue limited series, but you only ever produce five issues for it. There's a perfect example, actually. Um, Artesia. I don't know if you ever read the comic book Artesia, but um, Artesia was a self-pressed uh, uh, comic book by uh, Mark Smiley. No. Um, he did the cover. He's doing covers right now for Call of Cthulhu or for RuneQuest. So he did the RuneQuest magic book, Red Book of Magic. He did um, uh, he did the cover art for the new RuneQuest starter set and stuff. And he's a really good artist. So you're a RuneQuest guy? Uh, I only buy RuneQuest to use as um, how is something produced well, <laughs> right? Right. So so in terms of Glorantha, I have the big Glorantha books and everything. And 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 so we didn't even get into it. I so it's inspiration, them. basically, what you're using it for. Yeah, yeah. So I have a binder here, and this is my encyclopedia for my own game world. And um, and the question is, is how do you take it from these notes to a product? And ultimately, I'll get to that. It's a, you know, it's a weird thing. Um, throughout every issue of Smoking Worm, there's a lot of hidden things that people don't see. Hopefully, they'll see them one day. Um, my campaign is deeply embedded into the uh, to the articles that we write but you can't see it most of the time. Right. Right. It's not in your face. So it can be used for anything um, in the DCC. You could use it generically and agnostically without a problem. And yet, if you look at the quotes and you look at the notes and you look at the commentary that's in there, all the references refer to my game world and they're all in context. And so that builds on itself. Right. And, uh, so you're, and so you're, when you're, I, you're, you're, I don't want to say selfish, but you're actually building your game world. You're, you, you're funding the building of your game world. Yeah. And, and, and I'm doing it in a way that I think will add value in the end. By the time I get to the first 
publication, I've got a, I've got a game coming. It's called 1283. Um, and um, I, I may call it Apocalypse 1283. Um, and there, there's a cyclical apocalypse in my game world, a flood that happens every 800 years. And, uh, and, and I wanted to create a game where, um, where you cannot stop the flood, right? The apocalypse is coming. It's imminent. It's like six months yeah, out from the yeah. beginning it's of like, the game. It's like the, the, uh, the Demon Lord. Um, what's that one called? Rise of the Demon Lord? Yeah, yeah, something like that. The, the, the Demon Lord's coming. You've you got can't 10, stop 10 adventures. But, or you can potentially stop it, but he's coming. And at 10th level, it's either the world's going to end or it's not. Yeah. And so here, there's no way to stop this but you can experience it and, and then living through it is, is an interesting concept. Yeah. And what I want to do is create a series. I want to create a central book that details the apocalypse and, and how that works. And then I want to have little digest size module series that are every man series. So here's like, if you're a soldier in the army, what's it like to survive through this? Right. right. Uh, what's it like to be a commoner who lives in a seaport, right? Where you're at, you get it, the apocalypse is a flood you're going to flood right so what's that look like to you and and to run a series of adventures through that and let people experience that concept from different viewpoints um so all of that is great but when you pick up that product everything in here implicitly fits right, right. all the little dates and all the little notes and all the references to things to creatures and stuff uh, and and uh, and everything that's all in there, and it all fits flawlessly. So that a smoking smoking worm adds value to that to the upcoming product right away, right? And so you can awesome. say, hey, everything we've produced actually supports this. It, there is no conversion needed. Excellent. And so, yeah. Anyway, so Mark Smiley did. Um, he was supposed to do twelve comic books, six issues each, so seventy-two total comics. He got through the first three sets. He had to, he had to create Archaea Publishing to self-publish. Got so good at self-publishing, they ended up managing the self-publishing and didn't have time to do his own art and his own writing. And so only got halfway through the, the fourth comic book series and it stopped. And because and he, he was like, was like, well, I have no time. I'm now like running. He was, he's publishing Mouse Guard and all this other stuff, right? He's got, a, he's like, I've got a successful like it's like he runs dark horse i have I, i've created the equivalent yeah. of dark horse comics and i no longer have time to do what i wanted to do um and and so he actually ultimately had to sell it so he could get back to it and um yeah i don't want to be that guy no you do you want to <laughs> you know you're wrong you want to sell something for five million dollars and then you can go and and leave you you <laughs> yeah. you're right i can be peter atkinson right and i can yeah, go exactly homeschool <laughs> after i was a boeing engineer and a billionaire because of magic the gathering and yeah. and i own gen con yeah. and in my and that's a side gig because i've actually got someone else managing it yeah i've got enough money that i can go to go to film school and make films which was my true goal right so yeah, yeah well i better get going trevor uh i'm gonna try and get this out uh today if i can all right. Well, good luck, Jeff. <laughs> Let me know if you want to chat again. Okay, we'll do. Bye. Right. Bye.